And we are live back with another episode of the Shifting Narrative on Everything Autism. I'm Torin Kearns. And as usual, I'm joined by the Autism Sage herself, Mama Baden. How are you? I am good, getting better. I'm still recovering, but I have enough of my voice to have a conversation. So I'm glad to be here. And I'm glad that we're joined by Meg. Meg, you want to introduce yourself? Hey, I'm thrilled to be here with y'all. Um, I'm Meg Proctor. My business is Learn, Play, Thrive. I, I'm an occupational therapist. Um, I started out working in early intervention mm. in the schools and kind of feeling like I didn't know what I was doing. Did y'all, did y'all have that experience when you were new, <laughs> such as me? <laughs> yeah, I did. I, I did for sure. When I first started working with kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I eventually got a position at UNC Chapel Hills teach autism program Mm -hmm. as a clinical faculty member, but I worked in their clinic in Asheville, North Mm -hmm. Carolina and teach is one of the first places that said in the seventies, autism is neurodevelopmental. It's not Mm -hmm. caused by refrigerator mothers. Mm -hmm. Um, and they sort of were the the first people to say, oh, let's use strengths-based supports, like mm-hmm. visual instructions and things like that. They put it onto the radar. So I learned a lot when I worked there. And eventually after I had my first child in 2017, I left Teach and founded Learn, Play, Thrive, where I took the foundation of what I learned there and I mm-hmm. built from it with more explicitly strengths-based approaches, more intentionally informed by the autistic community Mm -hmm. and just sort of grown from there into a continuing education company Mm -hmm. with continuing education courses for SLPs, OTs, and we're about to add mental health professionals to our list of approved provider programs as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's exciting. Um, And you know, it sounds like your story, Stacey. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. But that, that her like Meg's story sounds so much like yours, where you come from the teaching world and mm-hmm. there were things you weren't particularly happy with how things are done. And then you stepped out and did your own thing based off strength base. I, I just love that. I'm sorry. I, I, I had to say that. I had to. <laughs> well, I will say that I did what I thought was, I did what I thought was supposed to be done. Even when I was in the school, I am very much a non-conformist, not follow direction, go against the grain and um, lots of pushback from my school, lots of pushback from um, folks that wanted me to do this. And I was like, well, that doesn't feel right. I'm not going to do that. Uh, but that's also just my persona. But it, it was, like I said, I had a really good group of people that I worked with. Um, and, you know, I'm uh, much older in terms of, I love that therapists now have the opportunity to have you to help them um, early, right? To sort of learn. Um, I was 20 years ago, started this uh, autism journey, if I want to call it that, when we didn't have Google, we didn't have YouTube, there was no, there were no books, there were no trainings. Uh, So it was really just um, figuring it out on our own. Um, But what I would, I would really love to know, I watch your Instagram um, and, and read your infographics. And I have a lot of parents that Um, follow you as well. And I would really love, one of the things that I'm always thinking of when I see you is how, um, what is the, so the therapists that come to take the courses, are they at a point where they felt like they didn't want to do it the way they were taught or are they coming to learn from the beginning? Like what, what's sort of like the culture of the therapists that come to you? Because the reality of it is just like we, before the podcast, not everyone's on board. Right. And we would love for everyone to be on board. So I would love to know, like, what is the culture of those therapists that do come to learn? Because I want to reach more of those people as well. (laughs) Yeah. That's a great question. I, I will answer that. I want to comment on what you said about yourself. I find myself face to face with people who are often in trouble Mm -hmm. 
all the time. I mean, that's mm-hmm. me too, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're the ones who say this doesn't feel right. I want to yeah. change it. It's uncomfortable, but mm-hmm. I have to know how to do better. Mm-hmm. And whether all of the pushback and criticism of mm-hmm. that. Yeah. So I, I love hearing your story too. And it's so common for the people that I talk to and interface with of mm-hmm. them just being the ones who say, no, I'm not going to do what you want me to because it yeah. doesn't sit right. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as the people who kind of come into the learn, play, thrive world, for the most part, I'm in this bubble, this lovely and fairly large bubble of people who I think they see some of my content. Mm-hmm. Often it starts with like an article about hand over hand violating a child's mm-hmm. consent and right to bodily autonomy or a podcast episode, it's often some commentary on behavioral approaches. And and my sense and the feedback I get is that this lands and resonates with people's core values, Mm -hmm. even if it's not what they've been doing. And it's kind of like, oh man, I couldn't name it yet, but I didn't like what I was being taught to do. I didn't like what I was doing. I felt felt kind of icky at, at minimum ineffective unimportant. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that I tend to get those people who had some sense of discomfort with what they were doing and are really, really excited and eager to do something different. And there are a lot Mm -hmm. of those people because my business grew and spread like, wow, I didn't even know how to run a business. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And and my courses have been so successful. And, and I think that's just a testament to people's values and mm-hmm. their their intense need for continuing education that will guide them. Mm-hmm. Do you, There's an exception to that, though. The exception mm-hmm. is when um, sometimes companies will ask me to train their whole staff, ah. which is awesome. And I learned the hard mm-hmm. way that I need to approach those differently because mm-hmm. I come in talking like I'm talking to my my therapy people mm-hmm. who are already on board and they're not. Mm-hmm. They feel defensive. Yes. They feel criticized. Mm-hmm. They feel resistant. They have those. They have the questions that are sort of intended to stop the conversation. Like the um, what's the evidence for that? Mm-hmm. Which okay, I support evidence-based practice, but I might've just said, we don't have the right to move a child's body without their consent. Yeah. And I said, what's evidence for that? I said, the evidence I know, I know. Beings and our, I mean, exactly. our code of ethics, I, <laughs> this isn't a question of evidence. Those are a very different experience mm-hmm. than people who sign themselves up. Yeah. And that makes sense. And I will say, I know I'm um, always the older one in the group, but I actually decided a few years ago that I was no longer going to work with the schools because I was getting, I was spending a lot of time and energy training based on the principal wanting me to train the staff, but the teachers were like, I'm still not doing it. And I, it was emotionally exhausting for me that I would put time and effort um, and just going through the process of, you know, you can only make people do so much <laughs> um, from the from the administrative um, standpoint. But in terms of so the therapists that come to you and, you know, like excited about wanting to do something new. What are some of the ways that you help them when they go back into that setting, because I know I've worked with some really great teachers and they are ostracized. They are bullied to the point where they leave the school because they're doing it right. And everyone else doesn't want them to do it right because it makes everyone else look bad, but also they just don't value our children. And so they don't want them to. So how does that work? Are most of them private practice where they have autonomy over their therapy or is it some folks coming that work for companies or schools just to like, how does they deal with the fact that it's when you're doing something different, people are going to not include you or say you're because it puts, you know, makes them look in the mirror. (laughs) And I, I was working on a course for a while on coaching and consulting. And, and I think consulting is one of the hardest things that we do. And to be honest with you, 
there aren't a lot of good trainings or resources out there on how to consult, Mm -hmm. how to change a culture, or if they're there, I am having a incredibly hard (laughs) time finding them Mm -hmm. and sharing them because that's, it's one of the biggest questions that I get asked. That's a little bit beyond the Mm -hmm. support that I give to people. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of folks are, some folks are working in private practice, but a lot of them are in the schools. Some mm-hmm. of them are in ABA clinics. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them are in environments that are hostile mm-hmm. to neurodiversity affirming practices. And those therapists are really struggling. Mm-hmm. So the advice I usually give is to start with in-service trainings because they're non-confrontational, mm-hmm. you can present information that isn't directed mm-hmm. at anybody in particular, mm-hmm. um, and that you might get that middle fifty percent of of folks. Like there's mm-hmm. this, there's there's a group at the top and a group at the bottom mm-hmm. that you might not change. Yeah. but there's this kind of group in the middle that you might be able to impact a little bit more but it's hard. I have a lot of therapists just have to leave their settings and say like, this is unethical. I can't work here. Yes. And I think, you know, I worked for 35 years, um, in and out of the school system with different roles. And, um, I will always say the culture of the school and how it values children who have an IEP is based on the leadership. The leadership dictates how our children are treated and how they're valued And sometimes you get lucky and sometimes you don't. And I totally understand that leaders are dealing with budget and, you know, test scores and their school gets shut down. I mean, I was a SPED coordinator for a charter school. That was wonderful. We put the students first. um, And the reality was because we did not cheat to make our test scores look better, we were closed down. So all of our families were forced to go to schools that did not provide what our children needed because we did it the way it should have been done, which is the children are first. Um, So that's the frustrating part about the system in terms of schools get closed down, principals get fired if they're test scores. And so they're looking at it from a different viewpoint, Um, but they need to start valuing because if they do look at it from the viewpoint of the students, then it does um, you know, uh, it benefits the entire school system. And, and so that's the struggle. And that's why we're all just doing this work. We're just having these conversations to try to bring folks to the table. Um, one of the things that I wanted to um, sort of ask your insight, uh, because I do work with a lot of um, uh, parents, therapists, whatever, whoever is coming sort of in the circle in the realm of what I'm doing. And it's really hard for someone who went to school and paid a lot of money to get a degree and a certificate in something. And then someone says that's wrong. And now what do I do? Because I've spent all of this money, I've done all of this training and now it's wrong. Um, What do I do? Because I spent all of this money (laughs) and all of this time. And this is what like, what do I do? Um, So have you had any experience with um, with that, um, in terms of how they navigate that, how do they get over that? Oh my gosh, now I've got to do another training, more money, and I need to pay my mortgage, right. And feed my kids. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that feels bad. Mm -hmm. It's, it's not how it should be. Mm -hmm. Um, it is a problem. I think, you know, I think a lot of us knew that before we even finished school, right? That that we weren't prepared for the mm-hmm. jobs we were supposed to do. What we really, did, I did, yeah. Really, I felt that acutely. Really, mm-hmm. that's really interesting, Meg. It might be um, because of the program that I went mm-hmm. to. So. Mm-hmm. I went to UNC. They've changed their they changed their curriculum the year after I went. Mm-hmm. It was very theoretical, um, which which would land for me if it had felt more relevant. Got it. If it's here's critical 
disability theory. Mm -hmm. Here's the like latest and greatest on comprehensive literacy. Here's, but it really wasn't that. Mm -hmm. It was just sort of vague with a lot of, hey, here's what not to do. Here's what's outdated. I was completely confused when Mm -hmm. I got out of school. I was like, I don't know what legs to stand on here because they said, don't do what OTs have been doing. Here's some vague theory. Do better than anything you've seen. Good luck. Gotcha. And I was like, I don't know what to do. So I think people can come out of the more skills-based therapy programs feeling like they know what to do, which is in some ways worse, Mm -hmm. right? Because then maybe you're doing cookie cutter therapy that's not very relevant or helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The only way that I actually see and hear this from people, this doesn't happen very often, but sometimes Mm -hmm. on Instagram, I'll do a post on identity first language. Like Mm -hmm. we say autistic, not person Mm -hmm. with autism. And I'll get a comment that's like, there's no way you're right. I just graduated this year and my professors (laughs) told me to use person first. Oh yeah. I, I love that. I, I love it. I, and I don't mean to jump in, but that that's always a, a topic for me when you talk about uh, identity first language, because I love how they'll say, well, because their professors say that's the appropriate thing to use. Journalists, because my background's in journalism, journalists do the same thing, where a journalist do an article on autism, they'll be like, this person afflicted with autism or oh something gosh. like that, <laughs> or, they'll, they'll just, or they'll just use the normal with autism and people will, gen- will gently point out that that's incorrect. And they'll say, well, this is what the, this is what my college says is the, this is my editor says, or my college professor says the appropriate sourcing guide. And we're trying to say your college professor and your editor is an idiot. Yeah. They, they don't, yeah. They, they're wrong. They're it's ableist. Like, well, they can't yeah. be wrong. because I spent a hundred thousand dollars on a degree that's worth less than toilet paper. So they can't <laughs> be wrong. So I, I just had to jump in there. Cause you do, you get that not just in, in, in the professional, like OT speech, uh, sped coordinated field, you get that in all sorts of fields. You get that even in freaking journalism. Mm-hmm. And the response is like, dig deeper. Mm-hmm. Dig, like, dig deeper. Yeah. Are you a person who can question what you hear and what you take as authority? Yeah. Dig, dig deeper than that. Listen to autistic people, think yeah. about it, consider it. I don't hear this very much. I don't hear any of this, but, mm-hmm. but I just finished school, but, but, but from the folks in, the learn, play, thrive mm-hmm. bubble, mm-hmm. because I'm getting the people who are, I think, critical thinkers yeah. Yeah. who hear it yeah. and they're like, yes, okay, yeah. what's next? What do I need to learn next to do better? But you're right. They probably are having this frustration and anger. I'm still having it of, of why didn't <laughs> I learn this? Yeah. Why didn't I learn this before? And grad school can't teach us everything. Our fields yeah. are too broad. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But I and wish it didn't teach us poorly. The other stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, you know, it's funny that you say that in terms of not feeling prepared. And I truly am surprised, but it also, I guess, is a good sort of insightful lesson for me because when I was in one of the school districts a few years ago um, and the speech therapist was like, I don't know what to do. And I thought, and then another one, I don't know what to do. And I thought, okay, like, why is people coming to work and not knowing what to do? Um, You just finished like all this, like clinical, like, why do you not know what to do? And I called three universities and even called my um, godmother, who is a speech therapist and taught at the university. I'm like, have they changed the program? Are they not teaching? Like, 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 why doesn't anyone know what to do when they come to work? And and I really, truly believe, and this is just me as an, and I need to stop saying, I need to come up with something else. Maybe I should just use that terminology, lived experiences. But, you know, I've been working for 35 plus years in a lot of different places with a lot of different cultures. And, you know, there are a lot of folks that go into therapy curriculum program to become a therapist because it's job stability, not because they want to make a difference in the lives of children or people. And they just want programs to run. And when you're just running programs, you don't connect with the human being because you're just running programs and not looking at the child, right? 
Um, and, and that's, I have to like, let that settle with me because if not, I don't sleep at night because I want everyone to want to save the children um, and make a difference. But I have to realize that some people are just looking for a way to, you know, I have a friend, she's a speech therapist. We went to undergrad together and she's like, it's just a job for me to travel to Europe. And I'm like, oh, you know, I'm like, <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And she's a nice person, right? She just is like, it's a job. And, you know, I've always been in the business of children, so it's hard. So I'd love, I'd love to know um, why you became an occupational therapist. What was your, um, your drive to check and pick that one and sign up for your first OT school? <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, I'm going to try not to tell the long version. <laughs> it, t- it took me a long time. I was really well, young. Please, when I finished tell us college. the long version. We love <laughs> yes. the long version. <laughs> When I finished college, I was 20 and mm-hmm. I had this liberal arts degree in social justice <laughs> in the Americas, right? I studied basically just that like That sounds like a degree Fox News made up. No offense. Oh, I know. <laughs> I know. I self-designed it. I threw out everything. I was like, no, this isn't relevant. No. And then I just had to self-design my major. I did all these directed studies and studied abroad. I just wanted to learn about systems of power and oppression mm-hmm. and historical and theoretical ways of fighting them. Mm-hmm. And I went to this tiny liberal arts college in Jackson, Mississippi, and they were like, this is great. You care about something here's here, do this. They were, it was, it was pretty great. Um, but then I came out and I, similar to OT school, I was like, oh, I'm not qualified to work any jobs. Mm -hmm. I have no skills. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it took me seven years before I went to OT school, um, Mm -hmm. And I did a lot of things and moved a lot of places. And some of it was just in search of adventure, right? Like Mm -hmm. from New York city to rural Alaska to Western Colorado, just kind of all over the place. But I think the, the most impactful job that I had was teaching high school Spanish. The hardest job that I ever had was teaching high school school Spanish. (laughs) I was not a licensed teacher. I was lateral entry, like basically an emergency license Mm -hmm. because they didn't have a teacher. Um, I was trying to be this anti-authoritarian teacher, like child-centered, radical pedagogy in a- a, With high school students? Yeah, that don't work with high school- Speaking from experience, that does I tried that I tried that shit with middle schoolers. That, that don't after about the age of seven, that stopped working. They were like, What are you doing? Well, I was 23. <laughs> They're like, what is going on? And I was like, why don't you love this? You're supposed to love this. <laughs> it was really hard. It was kind of I like teenagers. It was great and terrible. Um, there was this one field trip, my first like my second week of work, the field trip had already been organized to a um, Mexican restaurant where like some kids were snuck onto the bus who weren't in my class. And then they stayed on the bus while I went to the field trip. And then we were coming back to the school. I didn't even know these kids were here. They opened the emergency doors and jumped out and like ran down the road because the (laughs) bus driver had told me there were two kids who stood on the bus. And I was like, what? And they thought they were busted. And I was like, I don't think I'm doing a good job here. <laughs> so hard. Anyway, um, I worked with preschoolers and toddlers a lot mm. in like daycares and nannying and, and things like that. And none of it ever quite resonated, right? I didn't mm. want to teach content matter. I didn't want to, I wanted to support kids in a different way. And I couldn't figure out what that would look like. And this is the embarrassing part of the story. I was so desperate and felt like I had tried everything. I even tried being a farmer. That didn't go anywhere. <laughs> I like moved to a farm in Colorado and did an internship. Um, so I, I, I literally looked on a list of like best jobs of 2008 mm-hmm. and was just trying to get ideas. Cause I couldn't work in daycares mm-hmm. anymore. And, um, I saw occupational therapy and I read the description and I was like, yes, like, this is what I want to do. I want to support kids in a way that's really individualized and specific and context driven. 
um, and, and meaningful and embedded in their actual life. Mm -hmm. And it was just kind of a straight line from there. Gotcha. Yeah. There you go. Everybody's journey. How did you, yeah. well, I, I think I know your story, uh, Torin, you like to write and you're a good writer, but somebody, did somebody, did you know you wanted to go into journalism because you like to write? Yeah, that was, so that was pretty much the reason um, I got really into, I'm really, I'm a big sports fan. In high school, I really got into sports, became like a special interest of mine. And I knew I wanted to go to college for something because I didn't want to be home. And so <laughs> I need something. I'm like, I'm one of those people where, I have to be doing something I like, otherwise I'm just not going to be able to do it. So I was like, ah, screw it. I'm decent writing. I want to be, I wanted to do like sports columns in newspapers. I'm not that old. So newspapers were already going out of fashion. This was like <laughs> 2011, 2012, 2011-ish in that ballpark. So, and I was deciding what do I want to do. So I'm like, I'm going to go to college, take a major that everyone knows makes no money, for a dying industry. That's what I'm going to do. And that's what I did. And then I changed my major to creative writing along the way. Cause I'm like, I don't really like the journalism part very much, to be honest. That is so funny. Not one, one uh, of the things I want to actually to be make, home. you mentioned this when you mentioned your degree about uh, social justice in the Americas. So a big part of your platform, because I'm a huge fan, is talking about intersectionality and social justice issues. And you've, all, you've, all, you've mentioned at least once, I think you've mentioned a couple of times that some of your podcasts and some of your posts that talk about that stuff actually get less views than the more informative stuff. And that's, a, mm-hmm. and unfortunately that's, that's how mm-hmm. it is with, with us too. Yeah. Um, so my question is why, why? Cause you could easily just never mention that and probably double your following and all the people who get uncomfortable with that wouldn't leave and things like that. So why focus, I believe your first, uh, if I'm looking right, your first couple podcast episodes with Sarah uh, Sevaji Hernandez. I listen to the app, so I just can't read, save my life. And I think your third episode was on dismantling racism and ableism with Linda XC Brown, who I'm a huge fan of. I want to yeah. get her on the podcast as well. What made you lead with that foot and what makes, and why, why are you so passionate about that particular issue? Especially when I wouldn't say it's detrimental to your brand, but definitely you, you could definitely double down by just not mentioning it. You think, I, I, I don't know. So it is true that my episodes that are explicitly about racism or race, even like I did one about gender identity, um, they get less, they get fewer listens Mm -hmm. than the ones that are more explicitly about here's something you can do in your work tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's because people are avoiding uncomfortable topics that might challenge them. I suspect that has Mm -hmm. to play into it. Um, And uh, I think also people are so desperate to learn things that will help them in their treatment planning tomorrow that they're skipping over um, other content as well, but I, I don't doubt that there are people who go blah, blah, blah. I'm not going to listen to that when they (laughs) realize that we're about to talk about racism. I mean, we, we talked about abolishing the police, right. In episode. That was a great episode. Yeah. So interestingly though, I, I, my business, my like email list, my social media following, grew exponentially when I started getting controversial mm-hmm. really? oh, yeah. yeah, and taking a stance on behaviorism in mm-hmm. particular. And I think you draw the people that are, that your message is going to resonate. You draw them to you and you repel other people away. And I just made a choice to continue to be like, bravely values driven and let the people who that didn't resonate with go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And I would say the majority of my audience, they're like, Oh yes, this resonates, but I'm probably pushing them uh, beyond their comfort zone, but they're not leaving. Yeah. And that's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's what, that's what we strive for too. Even in in this podcast, I originally, Stacey will tell you, I originally said, I'm like, I'm not going to be at all political. I'm just going to focus about autism. Unfortunately, it's me, so that pretty much went out the window almost immediately. <laughs> but I've noticed, like, I've straight up, like, I'm not going to go into it. People who who follow this podcast, they kind of know, like, where my political views are. I'm 
both socially and economically pretty far the left, like not like Fox News left, like citing communist literature left. And that actually, if, at the bare minimum, it hasn't hurt this podcast at all because I don't go on tirades and stuff where I just do unrelated tangents. I tie it into, I think, and you do this great too, where you tie the social justice into how it affects autistic people. Mm-hmm. Because it does. Autism doesn't mm-hmm. exist in a vacuum. That's one of the things that I've bumped heads with some of the older guard of the autism community online because they, they, they want to just focus on autism. And the reason they want to just focus on autism is, and no offense, most of these people are white middle class. So the intersectionality doesn't ring as much for them because mm-hmm. they're not as affected by it. But yeah. most people are. That's the thing. So I, I love it. I, I don't want to come off as saying I'm not into like the social justice stuff we talk about. It's one of the reasons I binge watch your podcast, which I love how you wrap that together. So I just want to make that clear also. I really love that. And it's good to hear that you did get some engagement from that. Because there are times when even me and Stacy wonder, like, maybe if we just went on the straight and narrow, sort of strip things down, I, strip, I, I dial back on some of the personality and the hot takes, things like that. But at the end of the day, I, I do think it does resonate with some people. I really do. Yeah. Because that's real life. Real life is a tangle of stuff and it's mm-hmm. complicated. Yep. And the people that you're drawing are the people who are looking to be challenged, yes. I think. Yeah. And so let's let's do it. Let's challenge them. I don't I, say... I don't talk about radical politics. I don't say I'm an anarchist. Mm -hmm. I might've just said that, but I don't say that. I say, I believe people have the right to autonomy. Yes. And I think we should be working to dismantle systems of power and oppression. It's the same thing, but the latter, that's a yes, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, do I disagree with that? And what does that look like? And mm-hmm. how can I do that in these like basic ways in my yeah. work? And, um, you know, the hand over hand, um, I was telling a story to um, a colleague of mine uh, about the hand over hand. And I said, I remember when somebody told me that, like in one of the classes, and I immediately thought, well, that's just ridiculous. Why would I like make them like, why would I hold their hand to hold the cup? Like, why don't I just support them so they can like hold the cup on their own? And part of me sometimes, Meg, feels that first, it's just Stacy who always goes the other direction of everyone else. But I always think about my Girl Scout training. I was a Girl Scout for like eons. And one of the things that I remember being taught was a sign of a good Girl Scout leader is you're sitting in your chair and your girls are able to manage and cook dinner and make the fire and you don't have to be there, right? And um, my mom is an educator. I have a ton of educators in my family. And so I was raised with the premise that we're going to teach you so you can do it on your own, which is what I did with my children, right? Um, So it didn't make sense to me to like do it for them. (laughs) Like, so am I just going to keep doing that? Like for the, like, am I just keep doing that for the, um, it just didn't make sense to me. Right. Uh, and so I never did it. And, and whether or not somebody wanted to push back on it, sometimes I have no idea because I'm just walking in Stacy's world, but it's really interesting how people want to control what other people do with their body. Right. Like, like just are so adamant about making and then feeling that therapist pride of see, 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 I made them do it. And I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, I'm not sure why that is. <laughs> um, so what would you, what would, what is your, I've read your, your Instagram. What is the, is it difficult for folks who come in to, break away from that habit of constantly putting and constantly sort of doing, and is that hard? And, and tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. Cause I'm, I'm, I really want to understand therapists who are trying to shift, right. Um, because it gives me insight on how I can be more helpful to my parents as well. Yeah. So I wish I could <clears throat> say my story was the same as yours, Stacey, cause I did use hand over hand because I, like to be successful and feel like I'm good at what I'm doing. And Mm -hmm. I thought my job was to make my clients meet their goals. And so Mm -hmm. I tried to make my clients meet their goals. And what is hand over hand real quick for, because we have a lot of parents in our audience. Oh yeah. uh, As well as professionals. 
So I mean, I'm sorry to cut you off, but what exactly is hand over hand? We, I hear that a lot, and I think a lot of parents hear the term, but we might not exactly know what it is. Yeah, thank you. It's when you take a child's hand with your hand and you move their body to get mm-hmm. them to do an activity. So there's times that that might be okay, like a child with a motor challenge who's learning a new motor pattern. And I might say, can we do this together? Mm-hmm. Can I put my hand on yours? Would you like to put your hand on mine? Can I show you what it feels like to twist your hand this way? Like let's, there's times that that can be helpful if you have a plan to fade it out and move towards independence. But with autistic kids, therapists often use it as a strategy to get the child to initiate an activity that they don't want to do or to move through the steps of an activity that isn't meaningful or motivating. Yeah, it's it's for compliance, my my least favorite word, um, compliance. And it's done a lot, um, torn a lot of my families do it, especially different cultures. There's certain things in cultures that are very important to the culture um, which is, you know, where I, it's one of the things I love about my, my work is I have so many different cultures that I get to work with. And it is hard because there are certain things that are mandatory in a culture. And it's hard for parents to understand that because they do get shame. I mean, parents are shamed by relatives. Um, and so a lot of them do it like with handwriting. And I remember, and Meg, you'll appreciate this story. I was, I got a video from a parent, um, not a parent, a, a paraeducator. And she was like, look, look, see, see, she wrote her name. And the entire time the therapist is holding the child's hand, moving the pencil. And I replied back and said, I didn't see her write her name. I saw you write her name. (laughs) She never spoke to me again. (laughs) Yeah. I will say I'm not quite as hard on parents, especially around things like you you have to get in the car. You have to buckle your seatbelt. You have to brush your day. I mean, I have a two and a five-year-old, like I violate their autonomy (laughs) on a daily basis because I'm just like, oh my gosh, we have to get through this. The standard that I'm setting, that's not a great way for parents to teach their kids for a number of reasons. Mm -hmm. It's, it's good for us to push parents as well, but the standard is for therapists that we don't have the right Mm -hmm. to move a child's body just because we wrote a goal. And one of the big, now I'm just soapboxing, but, um, you know, autistic kids are at such a high risk of sexual assault. And Mm -hmm. and the lesson is your no doesn't matter. Yep. And adults have the right to do things to your body, Mm -hmm. trusted adults. So it really blurs the line and grooms them for sexual assault. Um, okay. I'm going to circle back to your question. Um, it is hard mm-hmm. for therapists to let go of compliance-based skills, not just hand over hand, also mm-hmm. with holding a child's interest until they do the thing that you told them to first do mm-hmm. this, then you get the thing you like, um, rewards and reinforcers. It's hard to let go of those when we don't know what else to do. <laughs> Got it. So it's like, okay, you're taking everything away from me, but I have to do something in my session tomorrow. And I don't have any strengths based Mm -hmm. neurodiversity affirming strategies. So we, as a, like a company, a strong company value is that our trainings are not just theory and they're not Mm -hmm. just what not to do. They are like, let me fill your toolbox to the brim. So it is overflowing with concrete specific ideas that you can individualize, but use like right now Mm -hmm. with your clients. Cause it's a really bad, this is kind of how I felt after grad school. Don't do all of this. I don't know what you should do, but don't (laughs) do any of that. That's a bad feeling. Got it. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And I, and like, you know, I'm sure it's very difficult because you've been doing it for, you know, like they've been trained to do this. And it's, and I guess for me, I always just saw kids just do so well when I didn't do the stuff, (laughs) the stuff that like, I'm like, look, but they're doing it. And they're like, Oh, somebody asked me um, about rewards. And I was like, I'm not against rewards. I love getting my Starbucks gift cards. Right. Um, But it's not, I don't do it where it's, you don't, get something right. Like, it's not like I'm withholding. Um, I mean, everybody likes, not everybody, but 
most people um, either like high grades, right? Or people like getting points on their Starbucks gift card or some kids love stickers. Um, but I, I told her, I said, I don't use flashcards and I don't use uh, rewards. And she's like, well, how do you get the kids to do things? I said, I actually connect and look at them as a human being. And it's amazing how they will do it just because we're connected and we have a relationship. I don't have to um, beg them and plead them to do it because it's a two-way give and take, right? Like I'm going to give a little and you're going to give a little and we're going to work together and, and, and building that trust. And I think that it's wonderful that you are helping therapists to learn how to, to do that because they need a place to, to be able to, to find out how to do it differently than, um, than what research-based evidence um, <laughs> dictates. Uh, yeah, I get that a lot too. What do you have evidence? I'm like, the evidence is this child is thriving <laughs> and I don't need to do numbers to figure out if it's evidence-based, like here's the evidence right here. Look, yeah. look, look, look. Yeah. And, and again, like dig deeper, let's critique the evidence. The outcomes are that the child acts yes. more neurotypical, which is linked to PTSD, yes. suicidality, and depression. Exactly. So that's evidence-based for ruining their lives. Good yes. job. It, 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 exactly. And one of the places me and Stacey do differ in dealing with kids is I am a fan of rewards and punishments. When I work with kids, that was sort of my big thing where I feel like a lot of people go wrong it's they'll apply the same so I worked with uh I worked in gen pop in like a inner city community so what gen pop in inner city community means is you have a bunch of kids who are special needs who aren't getting service at all so it's not really gen pop it's just inclusion without any of the resources so inclusion And so what I would do is you have to get to know the kids and the kids, yes, were held to slightly different standards because some kids had different strengths and weaknesses. For example, there were set ground rules. Don't get me wrong. Stay in your seat. Don't yell all the basic stuff to make sure I don't get sued for a kid getting hurt. But I understood for some kids sitting down was easy versus some of the more hyperactive kids. If they did, it was an achievement. So I'd be more likely to award. So I reward the hyperactive kid for sitting down. When the other kid was like, I sat down, I'd be like, you, you always sit down. This kid, like so-and-so mm-hmm. doesn't sit down. They worked very hard this week to make sure they were seated. And I understand how hard it is for them. So I would give them awards. Just like if someone was acting up and I knew that it wasn't something they necessarily struggled with. They were acting up to act up because that's a myth. We we used to believe that every sort of misbehavior was defiance, and a lot of times it's not. But now we've swung too hard in the other direction, mm-hmm. in my opinion, where we believe that like autistic kids can't be defiant, yeah. which I find to be incredibly ableist. <laughs> because like, oh, so we're we just follow the rules always to the best of our abilities. We we don't have any autonomous thought at all because autonomous thought means you're going to get defiance. No. Autistic people can be very, very defiant, especially if something you're telling us to seems stupid or pointless. So if a kid was being defiant or struggling with something where I knew they just weren't putting in the effort, yes, there would be times where there would be withholding rewards. I would explain to the kid exactly where I thought they weren't putting in the effort. And that takes understanding the kids, of course. Mm-hmm. You have to understand the kids, understand um, their strengths and weaknesses so you can sort of accurately tell if they're really just not putting in effort, which sometimes the case, or if there's something they're struggling with. And I'm not going to pretend like I'm perfect, but I just want to add that that is somewhere where I do disagree. I think a lot of people just get lazy. If I'm being frank, it's like, okay, here's the rules. Everyone needs to be applied. Everyone needs to follow mm-hmm. the exact same rules. You're all going to be held to the same standards. If you do, you get a reward. If you don't, you don't. If you score 90 on the test, you get a reward. Well, some kids can score 90 on the test in their sleep, and some of them have to lose three mm-hmm. days to sleep to, score, to, to pass the test, not even score 90. So you're not going. So it's not fair that the kid that can do it in their sleep is going to get the same award because they're not putting in effort because yeah. they, they don't have to. So th- th- that's sort of how I feel about sort of reward and punishment thing. But one question I do have is what happens if like a parent or a professional says, determines the kid legitimately as being defiant, especially as you get in like puberty, defiance becomes an actual reality because, well, let's say you're dealing with a 13 year old, the kids, it's a 13 year old, of course they're going to be mm-hmm. defiant. They weren't being defiant. Then you have a problem in my opinion. 
like, oh, they're just listening to anything you say and they're 13. Oh, exactly. I love when kids push back. Exactly. It shows <laughs> that they think for themselves too. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So how do you, but sometimes, sometimes 13 year olds don't know what's good for them. The kids don't know what's good for them because for a lot of times, because well, the kids, sometimes they do, usually they don't. What if a kid literally is being defiant on something that's important? Like, I don't know, they're not going to school or they're like not studying for a test that you know for a fact that they don't study for, they're going to fail or they don't, or, or, or they don't want to put on their seatbelt. Something or something where you have to get them to do it because it's like a safety issue. Mm. It's not just a ticky tack thing like, oh, he doesn't like to eat French fries. You get what I mean? How, how do you, how, how can you negotiate that? You know, ask me in eight years when my own kids are teenagers. <laughs> have a more complicated answer, I'm sure. I I like Ross Green's model. Um, the kids do well when they can and connection mm-hmm. before correction. So really mm-hmm. doing the collaborative problem solving of identifying the child's perspective, their needs. Um, if do they have skills that are lagging that they need to be taught? What are the expectations that are being unmet? And how can we come together with the child to make a plan that will help them be successful? Mm-hmm. That said, I'm not on the ground with 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds mm-hmm. anymore. Um, mm-hmm. and I have worked with autistic teenagers and I, you know, I wasn't the teacher, like Mm -hmm. I wasn't the one having to see these challenges all the way through. Yeah. And social media and technology, it makes it even more difficult for, for managing, um, teenagers in terms of just parenting, teaching because they're teenagers, they're supposed to push back. Um, and everyone should be held accountable. I am a firm believer if um, there are two choices and child chooses this, just like as an adult, we choose not to pay our water bill. The water doesn't get, you know, gets turned off. Um, accountability with, of course, making sure all the supports are in place and they made a choice. And I'll, I'll tell you, Torin, um, Noah, um, so I do homeschool, virtual homeschool with um, some autistic kiddos and Noah just turned 13 on May 4th. He is very proud to be a teenager now. And so he has been moving into teenager defiance. And so, for example, his latest thing is when he takes his quiz, he literally purposefully gets a 50 and thinks it's funny, right? Because that's about the extent of what his defiance can really be because Noah is really a sweet kid. So he's trying to be a, te- you know, he's a teenager, but his defiance is, I'm just going to purposefully not do well on the quiz, right? So I have like um, natural consequences that come into play, right? Whether it's the next time he does it and I have, you know, the, the control of the mouse or he has to do it on paper um, because I know Noah, I've been working with Noah for five years and I know he's purposefully doing it because he cracks up laughing. And at the same time, his parents and I really appreciate that he's at that natural developmental stage and that he has a sense of humor. Um, it's not like he gets a harsh consequence. It's just, oh, I guess we're going to have to re- redo that lesson since apparently, you know, you didn't do well on the quiz, right? And then he's like, no, 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 no. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. Like it says, you know, 40. Um, uh, Noah is really funny. He's just a funny kid. But uh I think there's just a balance, Torrin. I think all three of us have the same, we're coming from different perspectives, but I think all three of us have the underlying intent of as long as someone's autonomy or harm, or you're not punishing without supporting needs, right? Because I think that's the, 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 the part that I think is important in the work that you do, Meg, is we have to support their needs. We can't just say they're not reaching a goal and we didn't support their needs or we're approaching it in a way that is not um, uh, healthy, right? For kiddos um, in terms of um, you get that, you know, oh, they wrote their name and it's like, no, they didn't write their name, right? And so everyone's all excited about they got them to do something. And I think that it's it's really good that there's an opportunity for therapists. If, if you wouldn't mind sharing just out of my own personal curiosity, I would love to know some of the geographic areas that you're getting folks to come and learn. Um, because I know there's pockets around the state 
around the United States that are not interested in learning. And there's pockets that it's in brace to learn. So do you find that you have like a pattern or is it really all over the place um, in terms of folks that are coming to your trainings and your courses? That's a good question. I don't know because my courses are self-study online. I I Mm -hmm. used to do live trainings around the Southeast before the pandemic. Um, Okay. I'm looking at my podcast data right now. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's see. Where are people from? Okay. It is pretty concentrated on the East coast. Mm -hmm. Uh, largely like North Carolina through like all of the Northeast and Midwest, then with like a lot of listeners, it seems down in Florida and then kind of spotty California, Midwest, Canada, um, have a lot of folks in the UK, um, Australia. There's some interesting clusters though. Um, that's basically our cluster too. I'm not sure if you've ever looked at our data, Stacey, but I have like that. That's pretty much how our cluster looks like too. Exactly. Where, what you just described. where are the Southerners? Where are the Southern folks? My Southern folks just, I, I don't think y'all believe in autism. Yeah. <sighs> there's this like band across the deep South that isn't mm-hmm. really listening, but I have people, I have these interesting clusters of people buying courses, um, where after I'm like, wait, like I could have, I have scholarships. Like these, my courses are kind of expensive to Mm -hmm. folks who live places where they're not getting paid like us based therapists. And I I give them for free actually twice a year to everybody who applies Mm -hmm. from these places. Mm -hmm. Cause why not? Um, but I have these really interesting clusters of theory forward thinking people from all over the world, um, who were like, they're like us, but they happen to live wherever they live. I mm-hmm. can, I can rattle off names of places and they're like, Hey, your stuff resonates. I want to take your course and change mm-hmm. how things are done here. I love it. Yeah. That's really great. Um, Meg, I, I have a lot, I work with, um, a lot of parents <laughs> and oops, I would love um, if you could, um, any, any advice you have for parents who are in the South, <laughs> um, new diagnosis, and I know they can go to a roster to look for, um, therapists, but you know, a lot of families, uh, that's a struggle, right? Because there's no one in their area. So even though you look on the roster, there's no one there. What would you say to parents to help them get the therapist they currently have to want to take one of your courses? (laughs) Oh, uh, that is not the question I thought you were going to ask. Um, that's not the parent's job. Oh, they have to do it, Meg. It's every day. I, I can't tell you I do parent coaching to help parents um, with strategies in the home, but I do a lot of training therapists that are already working with the child that have no clue what to do, and they don't have any other place to go um, to find out. Um, I have parents who actually make the activities because the therapist comes in and stands there and doesn't know what to do. Wait, really? So, yeah. Oh, you would. My parents are really. What are they, get, what are they getting paid for then? They get lots of insurance money. It's a, autism is a big business. Give me their paycheck then. I can do nothing and get it's paid. It's a big business, big business. So for parents who do know the therapist should be doing differently, um, what are some words or, or something simple that they could say to shift that person to want to get and say, you know what, maybe I need to take Meg's course. Yeah. I think the podcast is probably the most accessible or ah, Instagram. Great. Um, I mean, I also have three free hour long trainings mm-hmm. on my website. So I think, you know, I do have therapists who say, oh, I learned about your stuff from a parent and I don't know, but I imagine that parent said something like I was listening to an autistic person being interviewed on the two sides of the spectrum podcast. Mm-hmm. And they said this, which made me think differently about how she plays and made me question, maybe we shouldn't try and write goals for her to play like a neurotypical child. 
Um, it would be awesome if you could give that a listen, if you're interested so that we're on the same page, but if their therapist says, no, that's not what I learned in grad school. You need to get a different therapist because even if they're not in a place where people have been trained, mm-hmm. hopefully there's somebody who is open-minded. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that's, I love the way you worded that. So all of you parents listening, um, great advice. I will say getting another therapist is not easy for the majority of parents who've been on a wait list for a year or two for a therapist and finding another therapist is not always an option. So they have to figure out if they can train the current therapist, especially my families in other countries. Cause I work with families in Australia. Um, they don't get to choose their therapists. They're just assigned a therapist. And that's one of the things that I know everybody's pushing for universal healthcare, but universal healthcare means you don't have a choice. And it also means you have a long wait list. Um, you it's like UK, I mean, I, I've done some, a lot of my families in, in Africa and the UK and Australia, um, it's not as simple. So they do have to try to train, but um, that doesn't mean they can't ask, right? It doesn't mean they yeah. can't ask. I've had a couple of parents who have asked, you know, the company and they did advocate and they did get someone who was more in line with, you know, neurodiversity um, affirming uh, practices. And so without even knowing that that's what they were doing, they were on board yeah. with it. If it were my kid, I would mitigate the harm and not have the therapy. I I agree. I totally say that. I say that all the time. And a lot of my parents are with me for services because they have to do it themselves without no bad therapy. Bad therapy is not better than no therapy. No, just nope, not, not better. So they just do it. Mm -hmm. And it's so like parents are given this, I interview parents sometimes and you, the, the thing they say is like, God, I just got told from the beginning that I needed so Mm -hmm. much therapy and intervention to help Mm -hmm. my child be okay. And they're like, actually, my child was always okay. Mm -hmm. You know, if we take autism out of the medical model, it's like, Mm -hmm. what, what are our goals? Like, why do we need all of these therapists? Maybe we do like your child learns differently Mm -hmm. and we want to set them up for success, but is this the therapist you need? Yeah. Or do we need a, a skillful teacher who is <laughs> attuned to your child? Yes. Yes. Which would be really, really great for all of our kids. And I, you know, I think that, um, you know, one of the reasons I started uh, my business, cause I'm not, I don't like being an entrepreneur. I never wanted to be an entrepreneur. I am only an entrepreneur because it's the only way to do what I am put on this earth to do um, every day, all day. Uh, but I, I did it because parents are, are provided with a diagnosis, but no one tells them what autism is. They just say, here, go get ABA. Here, go get therapy. Here, that's it. There's nothing else said. Nothing else said. If a child gets diagnosed with a hearing impairment, they bring you into a room and they talk to you about it. If your child gets diagnosed with diabetes, they bring you into a room and they explain it to you and they give you brushes. No one says anything. No one even tells them where they can go to learn and understand what that even means. And, and that's, that's where parents get caught up in just doing what, and just like the therapist, your grad professor told you, the doctor told you, your child's therapist is telling you they need to not line up things because you don't know what autism is. Um, Fortunately, we have social media, which is, you know, going to be probably the death of all of us, but at right now we're trying to use it for as much good as possible. Um, so that parents can learn from others and learn from autistic individuals, those that are open to sort of exploring, but it's, you know, it's why we're here just to talk about it. We've got to talk about it. We've got to have open discussions. We've got to, you know, autistic individuals are human beings. And like, I'm so tired of people saying sit, sit's my other trigger word. Sit, 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 sit. I'm like, stop sitting. (laughs) Yeah. I, you know, I agree with you that we're all kind of trying to figure out the role we can play in, in change. I was just interviewing an autistic psychologist about the Mm -hmm. problems with the diagnostic process and the Mm -hmm. way autism is described and presented to families. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the call, I was like, okay, we, we just need, can you just make a training? Can you make a training on this? And then I spent the next <laughs> six hours looking at their, the professional organization for psychologists and how to get CE approval. Mm-hmm. So it's all I know how to do at this point. It's like, let's train psychologists. Yes, let's, exactly. 
like parents say, do you not have any trainings for me? I'm like, no, but other people have trainings for you. And I'm trying to get as many professionals as I can so that it reaches as many parents as, as possible. So that from the point of the diagnosis, mm-hmm. everything is different. Yes. Or from the exactly. point of like somebody being like, you should get an autism eval. You should get an autism eval because if your child is autistic, we want them to know, love, and accept themselves and be embedded yeah. in a community where they belong. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that's a perfect place to wrap this up. Um, Megs, anything else you'd like to add? No, I thank you so much for the work y'all are doing and, and for having me today. No problem. No problem. And Stacy, that's why we're working to shift the narrative on everything autism. Oh, we finally got that sign out right. It took us about five episodes. <laughs> <laughs> see ya thank you guys so much that was thank fun. you so much where's my stop recording